Thank you very much. It is indeed a pleasure to uh, be invited back to speak again as we progress on our way through the book of Luke. Please turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We'll be commencing at verse 1. Now, some people have disputed as to when Baptist started. But I find here evidence that the, uh, the disciples uh, were certainly Baptists. And that is because there's a feed on and they show up. Now, in the Old Testament, they proclaimed a fast. But, you know, if you really wanted to get Jesus and the disciples to show up at your place, put on a meal. You read the number of times that these events occur at meals. He loved going to a, a, a party, virtually a dinner party with people. He really enjoyed it and the disciples were there. And this is another occasion where the events and the stories and the teaching happen at a meal. Before we go any further, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray now that we indeed might also feast upon your word. Lord, that it might feed our souls, teach us and instruct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees, to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. To eat bread on the Sabbath day. Now when does the Sabbath day start? Well, it starts sundown on Friday. Okay? Starts sundown Friday and it runs till sundown on Saturday. So this meal has to occur between those two points. Now, some people think it might be the meal they ate after they went to synagogue. Yes, that's possible. There's only one real problem with that. You can't cook on the Sabbath. You can't light a fire. So the meal you ate after the synagogue would have necessity been just cold food. Cold meat, cheese, bread, olives, you know, it's, it's, it's by necessity a fairly simple meal. And yes, it would have been nice to invite someone back after synagogue to your place to, to share a meal with them, but you're not going to be able to really put on a good spread. So the other option is, and quite likely, that this was the meal at sundown on Friday night. Now, even today, that's the big Sabbath meal, sundown Friday. And I, I remember a friend of mine who was a cleaner, and one of the jobs he had was cleaning a quite wealthy Jewish person's house. And the orders were, don't care how long you take, don't care what you have to do, but you be out of there by five o'clock Friday. Because they'd be coming in and preparing for the Sabbath meal. Now, this would mean that, you know, mum and the kids and the servants and whatever would be cooking up until sundown. And that sundown they'd stop, 
although the fires were allowed to keep burning until they ran out of fuel. So, you know, just a few minutes before sundown, you stoke everything up, you light the lamps, same as they do today, and when the lamps run out of oil, well, that's it. So you've got this period for having a meal from sundown to perhaps an hour, two hours later. And it's quite possible that this is the occasion we're looking at. That it's a, a Friday afternoon big Sabbath meal at one of the, the, the uh, chief Pharisee's house. And it's evident too that there's a lot of people here because it says that they watched him. In fact, you realise that this is a setup. They have they are trying to set Jesus up with some way that they can accuse him, something that they can nail him on. So they have invited him to a meal with the intention of trapping him. But as so often happens, doing that to the Lord Jesus is really not that bright because he turns the tables on them quite brilliantly. For in verse 2 we find, Behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. Now dropsy is an old term uh, and it simply would be today he had oedema. He was swollen up with fluid. That's what dropsy means. It means too much water. Okay, so this person had oedema. Now, oedema is not a good thing to have. The most common causes of oedema in a person are heart disease and kidney failure. Neither of those are particularly good to have, especially in a condition, in a situation where there was not, where medical treatment was far more primitive. There were no uh, drugs to drain the fluid out of a person's system or anything like that. This person was seriously, seriously ill. And it was more than that, they were obviously ill. Now some of you have seen it and some of you ladies have experienced, you know, the ankles, especially during pregnancy. Yeah, okay. Right when they swell up, we're not talking about a bit of a puffy ankle here. We're talking about someone whose legs and the bottom part of their body had become swollen and when you push your finger into it, the dint stays in there. That's the, the, that was considered the defining mark of dropsy or, or oedema, that you push your finger into the skin and the dint stays in there. It's not good. It's really, really uh, a dangerous situation. And they've sat him there in front of him looking for an opportunity to, to uh, have something to accuse Christ about. Now, Jesus sees it. And what does he do? Well, he asks them the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Now, why did he do that? Well, what he's done brilliantly, you know, look, we know that God is wise, okay? But sometimes we miss the point that God is clever too. And this is just so clever. 
What he's done, he's put the onus back on them, to back on the Pharisees. And he says, well, is it lawful for me to heal this man or not? Now, if the Pharisees say yes, then everything that they've taught about the Sabbath falls apart because it's lawful to do things on the Sabbath. But if they say no, then all the people who are standing around watching are going to go, those rotten Pharisees, there's a sick man and they're stopping that nice young Jesus of Nazareth from healing him. What a miserable bunch of people they are. There they are, there's a sick man, there's Jesus who wants to heal him and those Pharisees won't let it happen. Caught, absolutely caught by their own trap. That's why I say that not only is Jesus wise, he's clever. And he's got these guys really boxed. And they held their peace, it says in in verse 5. They said nothing. Well, at least they were smart in that. A few chapters chapters earlier, there was a a, a ruler of a synagogue who tried to debate with Jesus and wound up looking even sillier. So... He was, uh, at least they were wise enough to do that. Verse 4, and they held their peace and he took him and healed him and let him go. See, that phrase, and let him go, is interesting. It's, he dismissed him. He sort of said, he took him and healed him and he said, now go away. You know what this means? He wasn't even a guest. They hadn't, the Pharisees haven't, haven't even invited this bloke for, in for a feed. They've just put him there as bait for a trap. Verse 6, and they could not answer him again to these things. It is interesting that now our Saviour puts forward two parables. And if you look back, I've mentioned this before, you look for patterns in Scripture. And there is a pattern in Luke. An incident, then some parables. An incident, then some parables. He uses the incidents in order to start to teach parables about things. Remember back when, when there was the, the woman who was healed of being, of being bowed over? And he taught two parables afterwards. We'll see that you can, if you look through Luke, all this way through here, you'll find that's the pattern of Luke's writing. He takes an incident and then he talks about the parables that came afterwards. And probably this is the, the method of a lot of Jesus' teaching. When we had, a couple of weeks ago, when we had, I was there at Kids Club, I had a, a, what they call an object lesson, you know, It's easier to teach kids if you have something to show them. Yeah, if you're ever in this this sort of gig, it's easier with an object, something you can point to. Well, we're just the same. It's easier if you can point to something. And the rule always used to go in Bible college, go from the concrete to the abstract. Go from the simple to the complex. Go from the physical to the spiritual. And these 
This is the way Jesus taught. He took something that they could see, a sick man, a feast, a woman who was bowed down, a sower going forth to sow, all the simple things that they could see, and then went and taught about the complex and the spiritual from it. Verse 7, and he put forth a parable to those that were bidden. When he marked how they chose out the chief rooms. Now they weren't separate rooms. It was the chief area. Now we have, now we got coming up. Oh, they're not here, so I, good, I can talk about them. There's a wedding coming up. And it doesn't matter, I would have talked about them anyhow. You know, when you go to a wedding, you got the little name tags on, your, on the, the chairs, right, on the, the tables. They didn't have that. So everybody wanted to get the best spot. Where's the best spot? The best spot's next to the head man. Remember, even James and John did this. They said to Jesus, Lord, you know, we want to sit one on your left hand and one on your right when you come into your kingdom. And he said, you don't know what you're asking. But that was what they were after. They were after the positions of, of honour, the positions, the, the, the top spot. And people would come into the feast, and again, there weren't tables and chairs. One of these days we're going to have to do this just, just to, to, to see how it runs. You know, you're on the floor to start with, Okay. You're on cushions. Now, some of us would need more cushions than others. Right? Some of us have carry our own cushions around with us. But you're on cushions and you're lying down, sort of half lying, half seated, um, yeah, on, your, on your left side because you needed your right hand free. Right? And so it was a matter of... Uh, not, the spaces weren't so, so strictly marked. It was a matter of sort of getting your best spot and and he said unto them when you're bidden to when, when, when thou art bidden of any man to a wedding sit not down in the highest room in verse 8 lest a more honourable man than thou be bidden of him and he that bade thee and him come to, and, and him come to thee and say to thee give this man place and thou with shame take the lowest room but when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. When him that bade thee cometh to me, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then thou shalt have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. Now you might think, well, this is good practical advice. Good practical advice. But there's a lesson in there. The lesson being that... He's talking about the danger of pride getting in. And there's more to come because we'll find this, this story, this lesson of the man that's being healed and the parables which follow have a, a, a connecting thread that runs through them. So here's the first rule. Watch out for pride. Watch out for that that thing that puts you into a place where you shouldn't really be and beware of it. But then he says, 
verse 12. Then said he to them that bade him, When you make a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbours, lest they also bid thee and make recompense unto thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And you would say, yes, well, again, that's good practical advice. You know, if you're going to be generous, don't be generous to people who can repay you. Be generous to people who can't repay you. And God will recompense you. And yet, he's starting now to get onto a theme which is running through this this, this uh, whole story. And that is the theme of grace. Of mercy, which runs through this this instruction and runs into the next parable. And when one of them sat at meat with him, heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread at the kingdom of God. Now, this Pharisee had gotten a little bit further than some of his mates because he had realised, hang on, This Jesus isn't just talking about weddings on earth and feasts on earth. He's implicating that time in the future when the Messiah will come and we will sit down together in the kingdom of God. (coughs) And Jesus recognises in this man that he's starting to catch on to the idea that, that what he's getting at. And he begins to go into the next parable. He said unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. Now, that's, that's interesting that it says he, he made a great supper and bade many, invited lots of people. Because the next verse says, And he sent his servant at supper time to, set, to call them. There were two invitations sent. Okay, When you got invited to a great feast or a great, to something like a wedding or a big feast, there were two invitations. The first was sent much like we send one. You know, we request the, the you know, uh, pleasure of your company at this time and this place. Now, that wasn't enough because you've got to remember that the timing of a meal is a little bit trickier in those days because, you know... Wood fires and clay pots, and you know, it's a, uh, you can't say it'll be at half past seven because no one knew when half past seven was. So, what they would do is they would send out someone to invite you, saying, literally in those words, Come for all things are now ready, come for all things are prepared. That was the invitation you responded to. So there would be a servant sent to your house. Now you'd be sitting around in your best bib and tucker waiting to, uh, you know, waiting for this. And they'd say, come. And they would then escort you to the feast. Okay? So this servant has gone out to begin to escort the guests to the feast. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. Now there are three excuses given for not coming. 
The first said, I have bought a piece of ground and I needs must go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, three excuses. Interesting thing is that all three were lawful excuses. All three were excuses that were that legally exempted you from your obligation. And all three excuses are rubbish. The first one says, I have bought a piece of ground and I need must go and see it. When's the feast? It's at night. What, the ground is going to disappear overnight? The ground is still going to be there tomorrow morning. Plus, and let me tell you, we know this one. You don't go and buy a piece of ground without looking at it first. What? You know, at tonight, when you want Frank to do something, he's going to go, oh, hang on a minute, I've got to go and see if there's a house there, up, up in, in, in Epping. No. He knows there's a house there because he already saw it and he saw the dirt long before he bought it and he said, that bit. It's a ridiculous excuse. The second excuse. I've bought five yoke of oxen. Number one, remember it's at night. You don't work oxen at night. And you don't work five oxen, yoke of oxen at once. That's ten beasts. You work them two at a time. He couldn't check, out, check them out anyhow because you can only run two oxen at once. It's a ridiculous excuse, but it was legal to say it. And the third one's even sillier. I have married a wife. You know, the law said that for two years after you get married, you were not to be chargeable with any, any civic duty. So for two years after you got married, that was it. Nobody could compel you to do any civic duty. Right? Now, okay, it's good with them, because you can talk about it, like I said. Now, you've got those two, two kids who are going to get married in a couple of weeks' time. If you invite them somewhere in the next couple of weeks after their wedding, once they're back from the honeymoon, do you think they're not going to show? Of course not. They are going to be only too delighted to go out as Mr and Mrs. In fact, I guarantee that, that, that Kelly, the first time she gets an invitation that says Mr and Mrs, she's going to take that thing and put it in a frame and stick it up on a wall. Right? Because that's what you like when you, you just get married. It was a legal excuse, but it was a ridiculous excuse. It was an insulting excuse. And the servant came and showed his master these things. Verse 21. And then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Now, I, I looked up what these, 
words actually were. Right? The poor literally means the beggars. The beggars. Not just the, the not the working poor, the beggars. He says, go out and get the beggars. Now, how could you get those at night? Well, that was because a beggar usually didn't have any place to stay and was sleeping on the street. So he said, go out and get the beggars and bring them in. And the maimed. Maimed could be arms or legs. Right? But it meant someone who was, was crippled. The halt specifically means limping. Right? And the blind, well, that's pretty obvious. They're the ones who can't see. But he said, they are people you're going to have to guide into this feast. You're going to have to go out there and find them, guide them into the feast and sit them down and tell them where the food is. He says, go and bring those people in. Verse 22, and the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. Hey, some of you were here when we did Ruth, right? Remember in, the, in Ruth, the unnamed servant. Remember the history of unnamed servants running in Scripture all the way from the servant of Abraham who went to seek a bride? Here it is again. The unnamed servant seeking guests for the wedding. If you want to stitch your theology together, how's that for an interesting thread that runs through? I'll leave that one to people to, to play with. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, go out into the highways and hedges. Okay, the highways and hedges are outside the city walls. So this is, this is a case that the, the servant and, the, or, and his associates have scoured the city. They've collected everyone they can off the streets. And they've still got room. There's still a place vacant. And the Lord of the feast says, then go outside the city walls, onto the highways, in the hedges, where again the poor people without any house are sleeping, and bring them in. And, and it says, and compel them to come into my house that it may be filled. Compel them. This is great. Uh, you know, you, sometimes you look up words and you think, ah, oh, well, you know, words are words. This is a classic. To compel. <laughs> it comes from two words, meaning bent or to pull on and the arm. To twist their arm <laughs> to get them in. You know that expression, oh, you know, you, you're twisting my arm? Well, that's what he said. Go and grab these guys by the arm and drag them in till they come. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And we say, yeah, okay. There's a, that's a story. What's the thread? What's the connection running through these things? Let me tell you. The thread and the connection is grace. It is grace. First of all, let me tell you that we are all struck by a disease called sin, just as that man with the dropsy was. 
We are struck by a disease called sin and we cannot help ourselves. Furthermore, the law does nothing for us but bring us up and show that we cannot be healed. Just the same as those, those Pharisees and lawyers brought that man before Christ but could not and would not help him themselves. So the law and our own conscience tells us that we are covered and struck down by a disease called sin and there is nothing the law or we can do about it. That's the first point of grace. Secondly, when you have back a look, look, In verse 5 of this chapter, Jesus says, Which of you having an axe or an os fall into a pit will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? We cannot help ourselves any more than an ox or an ass can get itself out of a pit. We are struck down with this condition called sin and we cannot help ourselves. We are there and we are in desperate and diabolical need and there is nothing we can do. The Lord condemns us. We cannot help ourselves. Secondly, or thirdly, in the parable of the ambitious guest, he says, go down to the lowest room first. The Saviour has come down into the lowest place first in order for us then to be raised into a higher place. The Saviour has come in grace for those who had no merit or chance of themselves and promoted us into a higher place because he came down from heaven for us to a lower place. Fourthly, when he said, when you make a feast, don't invite your friends or the rich Grace tells us that he bids us to a feast where none of us has the ability to pay or recompense the one who invites us. The message of grace, the grace of God, is that he invites us to feast with him in heaven and there is no way known that we can pay it back or repay him for what he does. Fifthly, that those who despise the invitation of grace will lose everything. Everything. Those who refuse to accept the invitation of God to free salvation will lose it all and, and have nothing to show for it. Next. Oh, this is so wonderful. Next, it shows me here in this book where it says, Go out into the streets and the lanes of this city and bring hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. It tells me that God delights to call the poor of soul, the morally maimed, the emotionally crippled and the spiritually blind and delights to call them into his feast in his house. That is grace. That is God reaching out to people who have no hope and no chance and no standing in the world and saying, come in and feast at my kingdom forever because I love you and I want to see you saved. Furthermore, 
it tells me that those who are outside the city walls, those who are outside the sphere of those who, uh, of those who would be considered good people, that the Lord commands his servant to go out and compel them to come in, to reach out and, as it were, twist their arm and haul them in under the power of the gospel to be filled with good things in his house. Is there a message of grace in this story? There is nothing but grace in this story. A saviour who will heal a man who was brought there for no purpose but to trap him and still he is healed. A saviour who teaches go out and bring them in. Why? Because they are in desperate need. They are in diabolical trouble and there is no help. It teaches me that the law convicts but cannot convert. It teaches me that the Holy Spirit wants to see people come in under the sound of the gospel. It teaches me that God wants to see people saved. And it teaches me that yet there is room. Heaven ain't full yet. There's plenty of space. And there are plenty of those out there who need to come in. Where indeed do we stand in these pictures? Do we stand like the Pharisees and the lawyers condemning the world but unable to offer any help? Do we stand as the servant who goes out and implores people and says, come, for all is prepared, it's here, it's waiting. Or are we still one of those who are sitting in the streets and the byways, beggars before the throne of God? Are we one of those yet being compelled in by the power of God? Only you know which person you are here in these stories. Only you know how hard and how hard your heart is and whether you're still blind to the things of God. But one thing I can guarantee, there is grace sufficient for any soul here. There is the love of God which says, please come in. Find your sins forgiven, find your eyes opened, find your crippled life straightened out with the power of God and the love that he has for you. This is the message of grace. Come, for all things are now ready. There is nothing left to do. The invitation has been sent out firstly by the prophets and the Old Testament saying the Messiah is coming. Now the second time the servant has gone out saying come in for all is prepared and now he is reaching out and pulling on the heartstrings of the world. Will you listen? Will you respond? 
as spiritually the Holy Spirit twists your arm and says, Come, will you come? Or will you be one of those who refuses to listen and says, I have a lawful excuse not to come. I have a reason. I have my oxen. I have my asses. I have my lands. I have my friends. And I cannot possibly come to the throne of God. Where are you? Condemning, calling, or coming? Those are the only three people who are in these stories. Those who condemn, those who go out and compel them to come in, and those who accept the invitation and come before the throne of God, reaching out for the grace that He offers. Will you come? If you need to talk to somebody today, talk to me, talk to Pastor, and talk to God about where you fit in to these pictures. Thank you.